Heavenly Father, we pray for your blessing first upon Dennis as he is in that hospital bed receiving the fluids uh, with an IV. I pray that you would give him peace and rest and give the doctors wisdom to find out exactly what's going on. Uh, Father, I, I believe that they are not able to pinpoint what it is, but I, I pray that you would help them, that you would just give them that pinpointed wisdom, uh, drawing on their years of knowledge. pray that you'd bring those doctors together to be able to solve what is going on. But even in lieu of that, Lord, I pray that you would just reach down, heal them, where he'd be fine, all of his levels, whatever they might be, would be normal. They would be acceptable, and he could be released according to your will in this, Lord. And also, we would pray for those who recognize Christmas as a time of joyous celebration, may they continue to do so. And for those who are downtrodden, for those who are having difficulties, Father, I pray a special blessing on them that if they feel sorrow during this time of year, you administer to them. If they're feeling downtrodden, if they're feeling dejected or rejected, I ask, Lord, that you administer to their hearts. For we have received the greatest gift that anyone can receive, the gift of your son, Jesus. So, Father, as we dive into your word this morning, we pray for your blessing. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things, and everyone said... Uh, Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, and we're going to be reading from there, but I thought we'd look at or take a general review of what Christmas means from a biblical viewpoint. Uh, My wife said she went over to Walmart, and I think she was the one, or somebody else asked her, the person in the Walmart cashier line asked the cashier, so are you ready for Christmas? And she said, I'm ready for it to be over, is what she said. And, you know, Christmas can be such a hectic time, even at the church here. You know, we've had something almost every weekend that we have to participate in, what we get to participate in. But it seems like we can just run around in madness. And if you have children or grandchildren and going to their programs and just making sure you meet up with everybody and the cards that have to be sent out by some or feel they need to and the relationship building and the baking for the neighborhood people and getting all that done and dressing the tree and making sure Christmas morning is just right and buying the meat and fixing the meal for Christmas Day and whatever we do as believers in Christ, we know that it can be extremely hectic. And then you have to worry about your packages arriving or then your packages being stolen from your doorstep as so many of these news items have come up. And there was one case where a man... He's uh, probably going to have to take out a loan on his house because the medication that came to his porch for his son who was ailing was stolen, and it's very expensive. You know, so people have no regard for the property of others during this time, or some people don't. And it, it can just be a burdensome time, burdensome time for those who have lost loved ones in the last year, or, you know, just not being able to get together with those who you have previously in the past. But... This idea of Christmas, we want to set it in its proper context. And God had a big plan, a really big plan to get this salvation to us. And it didn't begin with the birth of Jesus Christ, as we will see. But it is helpful for us to go to the narrative. And we'll continue this narrative tonight. But in Matthew chapter 1 and in verse 18, it begins... As this is how the birth of Jesus came about. 
His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now Mary was probably 16 years of age or younger. She could have been as young as 13. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. In other words, he could have done it publicly. He could have shamed her. She could have been stoned, that type of thing. But he was a righteous man, didn't want to see harm come to her. So he was going to, in the presence of two other witnesses, get a writ of divorcement. Even though they were not married, if you were betrothed during this time in the history of Israel, you were considered as good as married. And so he could have just simply done away with her. And he decided not to do that because of a dream that he had. But after he had considered this, verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home to be his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. <clears throat> when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. It must have been a caravan of dozens at least, dozens of these magi that were coming from the east and all the servants that would have come along with them. So he asked, where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where was the Christ to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Now, I'm going to continue here in a second, but I want to explain about this star. This particular star would not have been a star outside in the universe somewhere. If you look up to the stars and you, and you were to be asked, which star is over your house? You would say, all of them. All of them are over my house. I mean, it's, it's really relative what is out there, right? So this star had to be inside the atmosphere. How high it was, we don't exactly know. 
but it led the magi or the wise men directly to the house. And this was up to two years after the birth of Jesus. It led them to the house. So it had to be close enough to the house, but high enough to where they could see it from the east. For instance, last week, this last week that went by, did you see what was in the sky? (laughs) All over the internet, my daughter texts me. She said, Dad, exclamation points, look in the sky. You know, so I walked outside and I go, oh, I know what that is. She goes, what is it? And obviously it was a rocket from Vandenberg Air Force Base. And they have a regular schedule, and it was perfect conditions for that thing taking off. And if you've seen pictures on the Internet, the plume and the separation of the stage, by the way, that rocket was only 12 feet in diameter, not very big. But the entire state of California almost saw this thing, and probably into Arizona they could see it. And it was in our atmosphere, and that's how many people saw it, far enough away where they could see it. That would be similar to the star That was the Bethlehem star or the the star that the Magi were able to see. And it had to be supernatural to be bright like a star because they mistook it for a star. It could have been an angel. We don't know. It could have been some sort of star, but it wasn't like a planetary star. These stars are much bigger than the earth. Even if you get down to the dwarves, they're much bigger than the earth. The uh, dwarf stars out there, they they have quite a, a large size to them. But anyhow, going on after... This in verse 9, they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh, and having been warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, Joseph and Mary were not rich. We know this because in Luke it talks about how they brought two turtle doves. They could bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to be sacrificed in the temple, and that was only for those who were poor. Another misconception is that Joseph was probably old. He wasn't young. And the fact that he was old like this would explain how Mary was a perpetual virgin. And that there's nowhere in Scripture where it says that she was a perpetual virgin because Joseph and Mary had other uh, children after that. We know James is the brother of the Lord. And so this idea of them showing up, imagine being someplace east Alpine or remote lakeside, a little place kind of like the houses are all together. In a town like this, the houses would have been close together. Joseph was probably working in his garage, sawing some wood. Jesus was probably sitting in the dirt, playing, or Mary was carrying him on his hip, on her hip like this, and walking around, and all of a sudden, my Lord, what is coming here? And you see camels, and you see these almost royalty, you know, these uh, like satraps or magi or wise men coming and all their servants, and they pull up to your house. Like, for instance, uh, if somebody sees a fire truck pull up to your house, what do they think? Oh, something's going on. You know, what's going on? We had that in our cul-de-sac this last week. Something's going on. Well, what if you have maybe 50 people show up to your house and you're this young mother 
and you're like this, and Jesus is probably sucking on his fingers, and Joseph is sawing like this, going, what? What is this, Mary? You know, what's going on? And these guys get down, and go, oh, this is the baby. Yeah, this is the baby. And they worship him, and they bow down to him, and Mary and Joseph, I mean, think of your reaction. What would you do? You whoa, this is a big deal. This child is a special child. And they left these gifts. Woohoo! You know, they had some rich gifts that were left behind, the gold, silver, or gold, frankincense, and myrrh that were there. So it was quite a sight. And the whole town probably would have shown up. Hey, did you see what's going on at Joseph's house? Let's go see. And he probably shut his garage door, put his woodworking tools back on the inside, you know, and, and said, okay, well, you know, we have a little bit of tea or something. They probably tried to offer them. But we have to put it in our perspective because we have muddied what it was actually like. We have the manger scene with Joseph and his halo and Mary and her halo and Jesus is in the manger. This is after that. This is two years after that. So <clears throat> going on with this, Verse 13 says, When they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. The voices heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophet. He will be called a Nazarene. Now, if you do have your Bibles open, or Daryl, if you could flip over there, Luke chapter 1. We'll end up reading a portion of Luke chapter 2 tonight. But this story continues over here. Mark begins with uh, John the Baptist. And the Gospel of John begins with Jesus and his ministry beginning. He was the Logos. Uh, but these two Gospels talk about the birth of Jesus Christ. In verse 1 of chapter 1 in the book of Luke, it says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division, division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. 
But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering, why is he staying so long in the temple? A, a priest, one priest was allowed to go into the holy place and once a year, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. So it was one person at a time going in there, unless they were going to move the articles or had something else to do. It was just one person, and they rotated through the priesthood to see who would do it. Verse 23, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Now, if she's in a senior citizen getting pregnant, if you were a senior citizen, you got pregnant, you would probably go into seclusion too. The Lord has done this for me, and she considered it a blessing. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and in the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible for God. Now, I'm not going to continue to read all of this that is in here, but Mary, she was so filled with joy, and when she showed up over at Elizabeth's house, she went there when Elizabeth was six months pregnant. 
Mary became pregnant at that time. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months, which means she stayed until the birth of John the Baptist, which was Mary's relative. Mary was related to Elizabeth in some way. Maybe she was her aunt or something or cousin. We don't know exactly what, but they were related. John the Baptist and Jesus were also cousins. And Mary goes on with this wonderful prophecy, this psalm uh, that is spelled out. It's called the Magnificat, and that is in verses 46 to 56. And then when it came time for Jesus to be circumcised, he was taken to the temple. When they got to the temple... There was an individual there. There were two individuals, actually. Uh, One of them was Anna. And Zechariah, his father, was filled with the Holy Spirit when John the Baptist was born. And he ended up telling him, no, his name's to be John. And they wanted to name John the Baptist after his father, a family member. And he goes, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And so then it goes into chapter 2. When Jesus is presented at the temple, then we have these two prophets that are there. There's Simeon and there is Anna. And these two prophets prophesy over Jesus. They are taken back when they actually see him. Now, when you see a baby, you might be overcome a little bit. Say, oh, what a cute little bundle of joy. Patty and I went to our granddaughter's little show, and there was a baby right across from us. And I'm watching the show, and I can feel Patty's eyes going right across me to the baby and watching the baby, and she goes, oh, he's so cute, you know, something like that. And I, I'm just going, focus, focus, right ahead on, on the program. And so when you see a baby, you know, you might be overcome a little bit and just filled with joy, but when these two saw Jesus, they were taken aback. And they both prophesied about what was to take place. And Anna, she was 84 years old. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were senior citizens. Anna and Simeon, they were senior citizens. Mary and Joseph, they were just babies. You know, according to Anna and the, the rest, you could say, you know how somebody comes up and you ask them, if you're older, you say, how old are you? And they go, 21. You go, you're just a kid. You're just a small little boy is what you are. You'll grow into a man one day and that's good, but you're just a kid right now. So this is the story of the birth of Jesus. Now God, he had this plan to have this take place. And he set up all the people. He had a purpose. He prepared for that purpose and he used particular people for it. And that's the crux of the message here. This purpose, God had a grand design. Now, when did this grand design begin? God is on the long game plan. He's not on the short game plan. You know, we we plan things like you're planning for Christmas. When did you start planning for Christmas? A week ago? Maybe you're just starting your planning today. Maybe you're going to go to the store and you're going to get your Christmas gifts and pick up dinner and bring that home and that's it. And maybe you'll get a Christmas tree for free because they're giving them away now because they can't sell them. Who knows what your plan is, but it's probably short-term. God's is long-term. It has taken millennia for this to come to fruition. And so we want to consider that long game plan. Just like in the book of Psalms, chapter 8, verse 3, the psalmist says, when I consider the heavens the work of your hands. Have you ever sat down and considered the heavens? When you look at God, God tells us, you know, to meditate on his word. We're to consider the heavens like the psalmist. 
we're to consider how big and how great and how marvelous everything that exists out there is because of God. And, and just for a minute, I want to look at the universe. Now, there is, a un, there is a website that does all this calculation for this. If you want to get an idea how big God is, we know that God spread out the stars with his fingers, right? He had a big plan and he made a big universe. It is, how do they say it? Huge. The thing is huge. You know, it, it's, it goes on forever out there. They think they might have found the edge of the universe. It's just that's how far they can see. They cannot see beyond that. And by the way, it's expanding. And when it started to expand, it was expanding faster than the speed of light. Galaxies moving faster than the speed of light. And, you know, according to Einstein, you can't do that. Well, God can do whatever he wants. And he threw those galaxies out there and all those stars that are out there. Now, say, for instance, and we're to consider the heavens, just like we're to consider God's plans. We're to consider his word. We're to meditate on that. The center of the galaxy is 28,000 light years away. Well, let's, let's back it up. If you wanted to go to a star, which is out there, it's four and a half light years away, you could do that. And the traveling, if you traveled at almost the speed of light, you would get there in about three and a half years. But the people back here on Earth, because the time is different, they would experience six years. That's how it would work. But if you wanted to go to the center of the galaxy, it's 28,000 light years away. Traveling at next to the speed of light, it would take you about 20 years to get there. But it's 28,000 light years away. The science works out. I'm just explaining it to you briefly here. I'm not going to give you a math lesson on it. But this idea of traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, you're going to the center of our galaxy. You do it in about 20 years. How many years transpired on Earth? 28,000 years would expire on Earth. That's how far it is. Now, that has to do with the time. Well, what if you wanted to go to the nearest galaxy, Andromeda Galaxy? It's two and a half million light years away. You could do it at traveling next to the speed of light. And there's a website that has a calculator. You can figure it all out. It'd take you about 33 years to get there. At traveling at close or almost at the speed of light. How much would Earth have aged at that time? Two and a half million years. If you want to go in space travel and you want to travel to something that's fairly close in astronomical terms, you will leave behind everything and never be able to return. What if you wanted to go to the edge of the known universe it's uh, 13 and a half billion light years they think out there by the way the universe is still expanding and it's expanding and speeding up while it's expanding you could if you got in a spaceship and you were traveling at the speed of light and you headed to the edge of the universe there'd be galaxies you would never be able to reach because they continue to expand out you would never get across when they're talking about all these planets that are, and I consider the heavens and the works of his hands, I, I'm fascinated by this stuff up there. We can never, with what we know today, we can never go to another planet besides those in our solar system. We'll never make it. It's too far. It takes thousands of years. If we launched the spaceship now, we would never hear the result of it. And, you know, the Star Trek and all of this ain't happening you know, if they were going through the universe, you would never see Earth again. Earth would be destroyed. If you went to the edge of the universe, most of the stars would be burnt out by the time you got there. 
But you could do it in about 65 years traveling at the speed of light. From your perspective, you continue to accelerate. I mean, you look at this and you go, then why did God put all that out there? Why didn't he just stick the earth right there? Because God wanted us to consider what was out there, how big he was and how powerful he was. And we're supposed to take that same view and apply it to the birth of Jesus Christ. We look at that and go, yeah, baby was born. He was in the Middle East and he lived for 33 years and then he got crucified. And they said he rose from the dead, you know. No, this is a big deal. Consider the universe. On that scale of the universe, the birth of Jesus is on that scale. Matter of fact, it's bigger than that. Because what came out of that birth, that tiny baby who becomes this man, this in human form, who is God in human form is going to create an entirely new universe that is prepared for those who love him. And so this idea of considering what is going on, God is using this long game plan, and it is in a big way, he made preparation, and it started before creation. You know, Scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, actually in verse 20, I'll skip right there, it says that Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world to be that Lamb of God. And you might say, well, that was in eternity past. That is a time reference. God was outside of time. When time began at creation, God had planned it before creation. Well, how long before creation started did he plan it? It wasn't even a millisecond. But how old was it? Forever. You know, it's kind of like, don't stop twisting my mind. I'm getting a brain cramp just thinking about that. So God, he also, not only did he plan creation and plan that Jesus would be the Messiah, but he planned for those who would be saved. Your name is written in the book of life, and it was written there, if you are saved, before creation. You go, how is that possible? Because he's God. He can do that. And, and that's just the beginning. And then when it gets to... The first book of the Bible, the first prophecy is given, and it was written by Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. This is the first prophecy concerning the birth of Jesus, although it was a plan of God's before the creation of the world. It says in Genesis 3.15, this is after the fall, a curse was put on the serpent. It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Referring to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And he, Jesus, is going to come back and crush his head. It's kind of like any power that he had is going to be completely gone. He announced it through his prophets. For instance, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 and 16. He told the Jews that another prophet would be coming like him. In verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. So even Moses said, he is going to show up. Now, did Moses know who it was on the Mount of Transfiguration? He was there with who else, class? It was Moses and Elijah. Elijah was up there. They knew who Jesus was. Moses talked about it, wrote about it in the book of Genesis and also in the book of Deuteronomy. He announced it through his word throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And he, he delivers that all the way down 
the end of that verse in Isaiah 7, 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will be with a child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We just read that in the New Testament. So he declared it before creation. Moses wrote it down in the book of Genesis and also in the book of Deuteronomy. And here in the book of Isaiah, we have two prophecies that Jesus would be coming. He also announced it through angels to Daniel. He talked about the time when the and he used Gabriel to speak to Daniel and Daniel understood that the Messiah would be coming because he would be cut off. And it gives us that prophecy when he's going to be cut off. And that was referring to his crucifixion when he actually declared he would come in and present himself to the Jews, but he would be rejected. And so that's considered for us Palm Sunday. And he also sent Gabriel to talk to Mary. And it looks like to talk to Zechariah and Elizabeth. This idea that this baby would be born, John the Baptist, but then Jesus Christ ultimately. So this is how he delivered the message. He told us when it began. He told us all through history that it would take place. And then 2,000 years ago, Jesus was actually born. But he chose people to declare this. He chose all of us. Now, these servants or these senior citizens, as I just said, Anna and Simeon. Anna was an old woman who prayed and fasted constantly and serving in the temple. Simeon, he, told, he was told by God he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And when they both saw him, as I just previously told you, they both prophesied. They said good things about the son, how he would rise and how he would be powerful and deliver his people from their sins. And then there were... Now, that, that group, first the Anna and the Simeon, what were they uh, that I just declared they were? They were prophets, right? Well, then you have the parents in the line of potentates. Now, you know what a potentate is, right? It's a king. The parents, Joseph and Mary, came through the line of King David. Both of them did. So they had royalty in their blood. First, the prophets are there. Then the parents in the line of the potentates. Well, what's left if you have Jesus who is a prophet, priest, and king? The priest. Well, who are the priests? Both Zechariah and Elizabeth were of the lineage of Aaron. That's why they served in the temple. And God set this up. And you might say, no, that's just coincidence. You know, I love finding these little nuggets like this. Jesus, there is no other prophet, priest, and king in the Bible, <clears throat> except for one mention. Do you know who that is? It's Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And he was the type that was to portray Jesus when he came. And Jesus declared, or uh, excuse me, Paul declared in Hebrews that he was of the line of Melchizedek. And so that, that was spoken about ahead of time. A prophet, priest, and king would come, and at his birth, there were prophets, there were royalty who were there, and there were priests. And there was one priest who was a prophet. He held two positions. Now, who was that? That was John the Baptist. He was given birth through Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were both of the line of Aaron, and he came through that line as well. But Jesus also declared that there was no other prophet greater than John the Baptist. The greatest prophet wore camel hair and ate bugs. 
That's what he did. He dipped him in honey. He goes, oh, these are so good. You know, probably the honey dripping down his beard because he would have had a beard. You know, and go, oh, a leg. Oh, and you eat the leg, something like that. But he, he grew up and he was strong and he was determined. And he, you know, as I previously stated in uh, the um, couple's reset uh, messages that I gave you, he was a man's man. Now, I don't know what kind of man's man, but he was rough and tough. He lived in the desert. He ate grasshoppers. I mean, which of you men today eat grasshoppers and wear camel's hair? And camel's hair, it is not soft. It's kind of like a Brillo pad. It's just a flesh wound. You know, he'd probably get a rub mark from the clothing he had on it. There's nothing for me. You know, and he would go out and baptize people. I hope he baptized them gently instead of just grabbing them and, okay, you're done. You know, moving on. But he, this guy was tough. And Jesus, I don't think he was any mamsy-pamsy either. That's a new term, technical term I came up with. But Jesus, he was the son of a carpenter. You know, he was probably rough and tough. He could swing a hammer. You know, he knew what it was to drill a hole and put a dowel in there and get a beam up. And, you know, they were probably lean and nice so to speak, not lean and mean, because they weren't mean, but they, they were nice, except when it came to being zealous for God that could have been perceived as being mean. You know, when somebody declares something in the Word of God to be absolute truth, oh, you're just so mean. It's so pejorative for you to talk like that. God's truth does not waver. It is a straight line. The arrow that that line follows that declares that we are sinners goes right to the heart. There is no ambiguity. There's no nebulous meaning behind it. God declares exactly how it is. And of course, this is the big picture with the birth of Jesus. He came and he declared it straightforward. He was not mincing words. Remember Omar? I've been talking to Omar. I talked to him uh, yesterday again. Just as a side note on this, I take a little diversion here. <clears throat> he gave me some pamphlets on Islam from his sheikh and his imam. And he said, read these. These might help you to understand Islam. I said, okay, thank you very much. And I took it, and I got to page nine, and this guy talks about his conversion, and he says, you know, in Islam, there are no irrationalities or superstitions. I said, I haven't heard that. I I have heard that there are some irrationalities and superstitions. For instance, did you know Adam, according to the prophet Muhammad, was 90 feet tall. 90 feet tall. And I turned to Omar and I said, that seems a little irrational to me. And he goes, well, did the prophet say it? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, then I believe it. I go, oh, okay, this is going to be a tough nut to crack. And so I, I dealt with that. And there's other passages where if the prophet Muhammad spit, people would try to catch it. And I'm going, oh, who does that? You know, and I didn't say that to him. I said, you know, that seems a little irrational to me. There there was another time where Muhammad said that all the people on earth would die after 100 years. And there's two ways to interpret that, that the people who are alive will all be dead in 100 years. Does anybody live to be over 100? It's irrational to think that somebody wouldn't live to be more than 100, but he says, well, the prophet said, so I must believe it. And and there there were other things like, for instance, uh, the angel Gabriel has 600 wings because the prophet saw it. And it just goes on and on and on. There's the, you know what a stink eye is? <clears throat> well, in Islam, there's the thing called the evil eye. 
And I talked to Omar about that. He goes, yeah, oh yeah, I'm familiar with that. And I read the remedy for the evil eye. Now the evil eye is where you look at somebody. I won't look at any of you. I'll look at the door. And you look at the door and you, you know, you get the, yeah, you just get this evil eye. And you look at somebody and they kind of consider that a curse. To get rid of the curse, you know what you have to do? Take a bath. If you take a bath, you get rid of the effects of the evil eye. And I spelled out all these things to him yesterday. I said, these seem to be irrational or superstitious. He goes, oh, they may seem that way, but you know, if the prophet said it, then it's true. And well, I, I was there for 45 minutes and I was trying to talk to him. And we have great conversations. I mean, we're friends. I greet him and I go, brother, how are you doing, brother? And he goes, my brother, how are you? And, and you know, we uh, shake hands and we talk. We talk for a long time, pray for his salvation. But this idea that this stuff is just out there and, and there is this other religion and there's deception that are out there leads me to my next point that there are evildoers. Now, I believe that the prophet Muhammad is a false prophet. And the spirit behind that is evil. If you look at what Jesus was going through, were there evil people surrounding him? How about Caesar Augustus? How about King Herod? And how about Archelaus? You know, Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who was knifed to death by a bunch of guys in purple robes. They killed him, right? So he made his way, Caesar Augustus, who was in charge at the time. He was the sovereign, and he actually got all the power to take any laws that were existing at the time and give a stamp of approval or reject them. He could veto them at his whim. He became the most powerful emperor of the Roman Empire up till that time. He also decided that he would get Mark Anthony. You know Mark Anthony, who was infatuated with Cleopatra? And Cleopatra wanted to take over the Roman Empire, and she was trying to take Mark Anthony over to her side. Well, he ended up making this pact with Mark Anthony and this other guy, and they formed this pact. And so they decided to go into the Senate in Rome and kill everybody who were their political, in political opposition to them. So they just knifed them all. They killed them. They poisoned them. Threw brawling people out there in the streets. This is what Caesar Augustus did to solidify his power. And then he put people in power that he could control. And so that's how he solidified his empire. He's a wicked man who is out there. And he learned what he learned from Julius Caesar and the people that went before him. Now, there was also King Herod. He killed babies is what he did. He was a baby killer, two years old and under. Just went and slaughtered these poor, innocent children, similar to what they did in Cambodia. You know, they take these infants, and I explained it to you before how they would, and it's tragic, they would take them by the, the foot, and they'd sling their heads against a tree, and that's how they would kill them. Just horrible, heinous men. They would do something like that. And then there was Archelaus who was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod after Herod had died. He executed families and seized their wealth. These wicked people were there and God directed them through the midst of these wicked people to protect Jesus Christ who was to come to earth, who was prophesied not only in the word of God but by his prophets and by angels. <clears throat> and then there were foreign missionaries or foreign emissaries I should say. The Magi, they were foreigners. They weren't Jews. They came in probably because of the writings of the prophet Daniel, <clears throat> that's what is theorized. That's why they came from the east because uh, it was Daniel who was taken over to Babylon and that is east of Israel. And then there were the common folk, the common folk, the shepherds. You're out there with a bunch of sheep. You're outside. You have this little fire. It's probably in the springtime and 
All of a sudden, the heavens open up. And you see all these angels up there. And they're going, glory to God in the highest, right? They're just singing and praising God. And they come down and go, unto you this day a child has been born in Bethlehem. And they just go, wow, this is amazing. And that's when you can actually use the word. You know, we use it so flippantly today, amazing. Or back then it was, oh, this is amazing. And so they got up, they went into Bethlehem, they go, there he is. He's, wow, do you see this? They probably brought a lamb. Say, hey, look at this lamb. You know, this, this baby's right here. I'm doing a little ad lib right there if you didn't catch it. But this idea that they would show up, they were the common people. They were the people that handled the livestock, which were out there. So who did God announce this to? You know, he told senior citizens, he told Mary and Joseph, who were probably young. Joseph was probably a teenager at that point. He may have been 20, I don't know, but he was certainly young. He hadn't made his way in the world. He was poor. We understand that. (laughs) Then we have these foreign emissaries. We have these evil people out there. We have these common folk. And then we have an individual who is a seeker who wanted more knowledge, Theophilus. We read about him. All these different people, it was big. God brought them all together, plus the message, plus his declaration before that. And then finally, you had the messenger who was Gabriel. There were angels. Everyone was involved. God was involved. But he didn't do it in an ostentatious manner. Ostentation being extreme, over the top, and drums, and lights in the sky, and fireworks, and everything. He didn't do that. He had a little Mary. Oh, yeah, there's no room for you. Go in this little stable over here. Have your baby. Hope you enjoy it. Maybe we'll get you some water or something. But, and it was very sublime. It was very, it was very poor. It was very quiet. The Savior of the world came in quietness. And he revealed it to a few. Just a few. Some heard about it, but they weren't quite sure. Some tried to stop it. But see, with all of this, God has a big plan. Now, we have to kind of apply this, too. Okay, so God has this big plan. He created the universe. He brought Jesus Christ here from the throne room in heaven, came down, put him in this little body. He grew up, became a man. And God still has a big plan after that for us. Well, what is the big plan? God still has a purpose for all of us. God had a purpose back then to bring Jesus. God had a purpose in creating the universe. God had a purpose in using these people. God has a purpose and using all of us. It doesn't matter your age or your station in life. You had rich and poor. You had male and female that were there. You had foreigner and you had a domestic person from that country, people, domestic people from that country. You had priests. You had prophets. All of these people were there. Now, which are you? Are you the common person? Are you the parent of a potentate or the child of a potentate you know what is this that's going on who are you you are exactly who you were designed to be so god would use you just like one of these people that's the big plan you're part of this quote-unquote birth narrative the bible hasn't stopped now if somebody writes more and says god told me to write more sorry ixnay on that this is a living testimony We are not the written testimony. We are the living testimony. And God has a purpose for us. Now with that, he's making preparation for what? For the second coming. Now he came the first time and he made all the preparation. He had the announcements which are there. The second coming, there's going to be announcement. 
For us who are believers, what's the announcement? There's going to be a trumpet. You're going to hear the trumpet call of God, the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I mean, and it will just go boom. And we're up and it's that fast. No, it's a little faster than that. Actually, it's faster than the speed of light. We will be here one second, not even a second, like a nanosecond or faster than that. And then we'll be in the air to be with the Lord in the air. John chapter 14. I go away to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to the place that I'm going. And the the disciples said, show us the way. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So he's preparing this place for us. And he has prepared us like the shepherds, like the magi, like the angels, like the prophets, to go tell everybody. Now, if we're not sharing our faith, we're not acting like them. Does God want us to act like them? It begs the question, does God want us to act like that? Yes, he does. He wants us to go out and share this. What better time than the birth of Jesus? Now, as a side note, without Easter, there is no Christmas. If we don't have the crucifixion of Christ, the birth is meaningless. And that's why I consider Easter to be even a more important celebration than the idea of Christmas. But he is making preparation for the second coming. In John chapter 14, you can read that on your own. So what is he doing that's taking so much time? How long has it been? It has been 2,000 years. And he goes, I go away to prepare a place for you. Okay, he's been preparing for 2,000 years. What does this place look like? Well, it's probably your body, I guess. I don't know. But God doesn't need 2,000 years. Remember, when God leaves, now the, the existence of Jesus, and I'm theorizing here, the existence of Jesus being in human form is linear. But the existence of Jesus in his divine nature is not. He just exists everywhere all the time, through the ancient of the Holy Spirit. He is the second person of the Trinity. How do you wrap those two together? I have no idea. But he's doing something. And he may be just existing, or it may be that he just ascended to heaven, and he said, hey, hey, Dad, Father, how are you? Okay, I'm going. And he does this U-turn, and he's coming back. But for us, it's over 2,000 years. For him, it could be instantaneous. And he comes right back. After the uh, Christmas time, I'm going to go into just a little bit of prophecy. I'm going to deal with that in January before we get back into a book. And this whole idea of, well, when is this going to take place? When is this going to happen? And if Jesus wasn't born the first time, the second time wouldn't be happening. And it's happening. And he told us it's going to take place. And so what should we be doing on this earth when we know we are waiting for the time of the Gentiles to end. And that's what it's called. It's called the time of the Gentiles. In Luke chapter 21, verse 24, they will fall by the sword and will be taken prisoners into all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The time of the Gentiles is the time where the Gentile nations are ruling over the earth. Those are going to come to an end. It's going to come to an end with the rapture of the church and the tribulation period. And then Jesus comes back and he sets up his rule and reign here. There's other places. <clears throat> in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, it talks about the full number of the Gentiles coming in. God is just waiting for those who are not believers to get saved, to get up to the number that equals the number of people in the church. There is a finite number. 
It doesn't go on forever. It's just we're waiting for that last person to get saved. Is everyone saved in here? I hope so. If you're not saved, would you get saved? We're waiting for the rapture. And you might be the one holdout in this whole plan. And we don't need a holdout. We need to make sure we are sharing the gospel. This will come to fruition. God will call us to be with him. The time of the Gentiles will end. All of the Gentiles will be brought in. And then God will deal with the rest of the world through the tribulation and the millennial reign. That is what is taking place. And he will be using people like all of us to do it. This is our calling. Now, I don't want that to overshadow what God has done for us. Because it's real easy to try to bring a guilt trip on somebody. Well, you're not doing enough. You know, you need to be doing a little more. Yeah, we all have responsibilities which are out there that we have to fulfill. Because God said, I want you to fulfill these things. But if we lose sight of what God has done for us in the birth of Jesus Christ, it's all for naught. It's just worthless if we forget how great a gift that Jesus has given to us. So what, what's our task? Keeping that as our primary focus, God's gift to us. Our primary task, share the good news, make disciples, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And the top one is make disciples. Now, we want to make sure we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, and we want to make sure we share the good news. <clears throat> but keep in mind, Jesus is coming to earth and these things are set in stone. They are not going to change. He has put his spirit in us. He has put his life in us. He has put in us the desire to do his will. And all of this was a result of him coming to earth, leaving after his death and giving us his Holy Spirit. That is the big plan of the celebration of Christmas. God set it into motion in a physical way. And that's why he set up his church. And in case we lose sight of Christmas, we don't want to lose sight of Christmas. There's one person who said this. And his name, who said this, is Dr. Seuss. Maybe Christmas, the Grinch thought, doesn't come from a store. You know, that's the most watched Christmas movie of all time. And I think he's right. I think Dr. Seuss got it right. Christmas does not come from something bought in a store. It's something that is within us, God's Holy Spirit that he placed there, Jesus coming to earth. And so my prayer for you is that you keep in focus the meaning of the birth of Christ and you consider it like the heavens or like God's word and the wisdom that he has, that you actually focus on it and meditate on it, the repercussions of that. And what it means for us in the future of his second coming. We recognize his first coming. In January we're going to talk about his second coming. And what's taking place with that. But may God give you wisdom to see clearly God's plan in this. And may you not shrink back from what he has for you. There are so many people that just say, nah, not interested. Nah, not going to grow. Nah, not going to apply myself. There's too much to do. For what? The earth is dying. We're not taking anything with us. You're not going to keep a little keepsake and take it. I just wanted to bring this one thing to heaven, Jesus. Is that okay? No. It's, it's going to be destroyed. Not even our bodies make it. You mean this glorious body is not going to... No. The body is not going to make it. You're going to get a new body. Everything is going to be new. 
So if you know Christ, keep that in mind. If you don't know Christ, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is so insightful. You left so much information for us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to take it to heart. That we would be those disciples that you call us to be, but we would never forget, first and foremost, and primarily what you have done for us. Because we cannot achieve salvation on our own. It is a free gift from you. We thank you for this Christmas time. We thank you for Jesus. And we ask for help for those who are suffering during this time. But we ask for all of us, Lord, that you would increase our joy as we wait expectantly for the return of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray and everyone said.